hard questions. Habakkuk is wrestling with some of the same questions that we struggle with. We don't know what's going on in his life individually, but certainly when he looks at world events and events within the nation where his heart is is so drawn because he is a shepherd of the people, what he sees breaks his heart. He sees the disobedience of God's people and he cries out to the Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Why do you not hear my prayer? He asks questions similar to our own and and this, this week I invited you to send me some of your hard questions and some of the ones that I received reflect the questions of Habakkuk. Questions like, God, why do you seem so hidden? Why don't you show yourself? God, are you just? Questions like, why does evil seem to so easily reach over good? Especially as it relates to our own lives, our own struggle with temptation and sin. We're going to try to touch on at least some of those. That last one I'll I'll hit on more in two weeks. But today we're going to examine the question of, is God hidden? Last week we tried to look at, God, do you hear me? And God gave an answer to Habakkuk um, after a period of time. We don't know how long he was crying out. You know, it's easy when you read um, such short verses that it seems like he prays and a few days later, perhaps the answer comes. But most likely, if it's like our experience, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He got frustrated and he prayed. And eventually, God answered in the perfect timing. But the answer confused Habakkuk. His answer was, I'm doing something that if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe me. If I told you what I'm doing both in your life and in your people and in this world, you wouldn't be able to to understand it. What he's really saying is it would blow your mind. It is so huge because he was laying the foundation for the gospel to be spread to all nations. In fact, what God was doing at that time is directly connected to what we saw this morning, to your and I's salvation in Christ Jesus, because it was preparing the way for the gospel to spread to all nations. God was saying, I'm doing more than you think. You need to trust me. Well, today's question is similar, and it's the question of, is God hidden? Why, God, why don't you show yourself? Habakkuk asks, asks it this way in verse 3. He says, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? In essence, what he's asking is, God, aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to step in in the midst of this mess and change things? In essence, he's asking, God, why don't you show yourself? Now, let's be honest. How many of you have prayed or at least thought in your heart, God, I wish you would just show us who you really are, step into into history, and let us see you for who you are so that no one can doubt that you are God? Anybody besides me? We wrestle with that, don't we? We wonder, God, if you're God, why don't we see you more clearly? 
That's part of what Habakkuk is wrestling with. He knows God is who he says he is. He believes in his heart fully. He's seen affirmation of his faith as it is lived out, but he's still wishing that God would show himself more. Well, if we're going to answer that question and really be able to, to wrestle with it, we need to look at the time when God did just that. Because there are moments in history where God did step in and show himself in incredibly powerful ways. The most important of which is Jesus Christ. Because God stepped into human history. He stepped into the brokenness of our world and he showed us what God was like, full of grace and truth, and what happened to him. The people's response ultimately was crucify him. So God doing miracle after miracle after miracle and sign after sign after sign is not enough because the problem that we have is not a problem of what we see with our eyes. It is the condition of our heart. And what we see, even if we were to see amazing miracles right before our eyes, it will not guarantee a transformation of our heart. That comes by grace and is exercised through faith. And that is the message that God gives back to Habakkuk. He's telling him the righteous will live by faith. That's where transformation happens. And so God did show himself. But let's look at another time. Let's go back into the Old Testament and think about a time where God showed himself because the answer to is God hidden is at least partially yes. But it is so for a couple of very important reasons. We tend to think that if God would just show himself in the midst of our problems, we would be content. That would resolve everything. It would silence the critics. But would it? Would our life really change if God opened the veil of heaven and showed himself to you and to everyone else? The best example I know to be able to understand this and see how prone we are to sin is to remember the exodus of Israel. The book of Exodus, in that we have recorded a time when God clearly showed himself. The people of God had cried out for 400 years for deliverance from slavery in Egypt. In their difficulty, they reached for God, which is a truth we need to remember. It is the adversity in my life that tends to cause me to seek God far more than the blessings I receive. When things are going good, I drift. And if you're honest, so do you. So what happened to Israel, the people of God? God sent them Moses to be the deliverer, and God did mighty miracles through his servant Moses. The ten plagues were visited upon the people of Egypt to convince Pharaoh and to convince the people that God was real and that he should let his people go. That's all he was asking them to do. The people of Israel saw indication after indication, miracle after miracle of God's presence. And then it was culminated 
in them walking out of Egypt and God miraculously parting the Dead Sea and they're walking across on dry land. Now you would think if God showed those kind of miracles in, in such a compact, short period of time where you saw God working, that the natural response of his people would be faithfulness, right? But that's not what happens. Moses goes upon the mountain to receive the law of God and within 50 days of the Passover, the people of Israel are saying, God's forgotten us and the real gods that led us out of Egypt, those are gods that we will make. We're gonna take our gold and our jewelry and we're gonna make a golden calf, an idol, and we're gonna worship it. You see, we are hardwired to sin and rebellion. We are not hardwired to faith and obedience. That requires a work of grace in our heart and in our life. But it's more than that. Even after that happened and on that first Pentecost, 3,000 people were killed because of their disobedience when the law was given. How beautiful it is, though, on the second Pentecost, the Pentecost after Jesus' crucifixion, when the Holy Spirit was given, 3,000 people were added to the church in that one day. Because the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the beauty of how God works. But it is a work not by sight, but by faith. So Israel... They've seen the miracles. They rebelled against God. God judged them for their rebellion. And then he gave them a continual symbol of his presence. There during the wilderness time, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that showed the Shekinah presence, the glory of God continually. Anytime they looked in the direction towards the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, they could see God's presence. And their lives were reinforced daily by miracles because every morning, except for on the Sabbath, manna, bread from heaven, appeared and God fed them personally. You would think that would cause them to trust, but it didn't. When God then tells them to go into the land, the promised land that he has given them, they're fearful and they rebel. So clearly, if God were to make himself more visible, it has a very limited track record of producing transformation. The same happened to Jesus. Many of the people who saw his miracles turned away because they were unwilling in their pride to acknowledge that they needed a savior. The same is true for us. There's a second reason, however, why God is hidden, and that is his grace. We must remember that God is an absolutely holy God. Israel had to learn this the hard way. God judged them because of their disobedience. He also reminded them that they were not to approach the mountain of God on their own, that there were conditions that had to be made. And God even instructed 
Moses, he says, no one can see my face and live because God is perfect and is holy. And so therefore, his hiddenness is for our benefit lest we would be consumed by his perfection, by his glory. But what he has done is the same thing that he, is, he did for Moses. He said, I will let my goodness pass before you. I want to show you my character. I want to show you my grace. And that is what he has done ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. So when Habakkuk asks this question, God answers and says, I am working. I am working in ways that you cannot see. And in order for you to really understand that, you need to trust me. Habakkuk, though, also has another question that is woven in here. Not only, God, why do you seem hidden? Why do you not show yourself? But he also has a question about justice. He says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 4, that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And in his second complaint, in verse 12, he affirms God. And this, by the way, is a great example to us. In fact, when we see the prophets bringing their questions before God, they do it in a beautiful way. They begin by affirming God for who they are, for who he, excuse me, for who he is. And he says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. He's confirming that his life is hidden in God. His faith is in God. God is holy and is pure. But there's things he still doesn't understand. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. He's answering back to God's, God's statement to him that he would raise up the Chaldeans to bring judgment on Israel. End of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? His question is, God, where is the justice? Now, I have to confess to you I believe that is a very dangerous question. It is dangerous personally because the truth is I don't want God's justice. I need God's mercy. I am a sinner who is separated from God because of my sin. But God in his mercy provided one who was holy and pure and righteous, his son Jesus Christ, to stand in my place and take the full, uh, the full weight of justice that I deserved, that you deserved. And Jesus Christ bore that on the cross. But Habakkuk is asking this question ultimately because he's wrestling with, God, when will you balance the scales? A part of that question, in order to really answer it, we need to make a distinction. Because one of the reasons why we wrestle with that question is we have a tendency to equate God and life as almost the same thing, to mix them together. 
Here's what I mean by that. Life is unfair. The Bible makes absolutely no other claim. It says this life is broken. It is unfair. You and I will experience hurt and pain and disappointment and betrayal. We will suffer sickness. And unless the Lord comes, we will suffer death because life is unfair. Now, there's a reason in the scripture as to why it is unfair, but we must first make a separation between life being unfair and God himself because God is bigger. God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting him to constantly bless, expecting good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. God's existence Even his love for me does not depend upon good things happening to me. In truth, the struggles that, uh, excuse me, (coughs) the struggles that I have often are the things that cause me to become desperate for God in the first place. Remind me of my continual need for him. Our relationship with God must be higher than his blessings. And it must go beyond whether good or bad happens to us in life. It is a relationship with a person who is holy, who is perfect, and who is loving. But this relationship must transcend our circumstances. That's why I believe that the prosperity gospel is so dangerous because the emphasis is on me and not on God. He deserves it, not me. So why is life unfair? Well, the scripture clearly tells us that life is unfair because humanity chose sin. Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That choice meant that our life experience would be broken. For every one of their descendants, we would experience good because God is good. And we will experience evil because we chose sin. And whereas it was the initial sin of Adam and Eve that brought the knowledge of evil into life experience, every one of us have confirmed that choice by our own sin. So life is broken. Sometimes bad things happen because of choices that we make. Sin has consequences for all of us, both personally and corporately. And we should not expect God to bless our sin and our selfishness. When I disobey God, he will discipline me. And I'm thankful for that. He does it because he loves us. Not because he's angry with us, but because he's trying to conform us into the image of his son. So in the midst of pain, I need to explore first and see, Lord, is there sin in my life that I need to confess before you and turn from? Because some of the pain in our life is our own choices, our own sin. Sometimes bad things happen because of the choices that others make. My sin and my failure affects the lives of others. 
It unpacks those I love, my friends, and even strangers that I don't know. And the same is true with every human on the face of the earth. Sometimes bad things happen for no reason other than we are human beings and we have a human experience. Pain, heartache, grief, loss, disease, and death are inevitable parts of the human experience. We live in a world that knows both good and evil. To be honest, for the skeptic, the harder question to answer is, why is there good? If I am to follow the logic of humanistic evolution, where might makes right, the only reason I could ever expect good would be if I am the most powerful. If I can dominate my will over other people. If that is true, if we are simply products of random chance, then there really is no explanation for good, for beauty, for art, for music, for so many of the blessings that we take for granted that are gifts from God. That is harder to explain than evil. The human experience is hardwired for pain because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, because sin scarred a perfect world and brought suffering into our experience. God is not responsible for our pain. And it is not true that you can find good in every situation. Some things just are horrible and broken. But only God can redeem our pain. Only God provides a remedy, what we sang about. I recently had a conversation with, with a friend who's, a, who's an atheist, a, a Czech man, he's an attorney. And, and his big stumbling block was how could God, a good God, allow the Holocaust? It's a hard question. And it's, it's a question... I can't answer, I can't answer the why. I can see glimpses of it, but I know this. If there is no God, and therefore there is no judge who will eventually balance the scales, then it is an even greater tragedy. It has absolutely zero hope. But we have a God who has stepped into our brokenness. Life is not fair, but that is why God chose to enter into the unfairness of life and bring redemption. If you want the ultimate example, the ultimate illustration that life is not fair, look at the cross. Because a perfect, holy, sinless God was crucified. The most unjust act in all of history. In fact, if we want to see the greatest display of good and evil simultaneously occupying the same tree, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. A perfect, loving God bearing the evil of our sin, being crucified on our behalf. 
The cross demolished for all time the basic assumption that life will be fair. Philip Yancey in his great book, Disappointment with God, says this. No one is exempt from tragedy or disappointment. God himself was not exempt. Jesus offered no immunity, no way out of unfairness, but rather a way through it to the other side. Just as Good Friday demolished the instinctive belief that this life is supposed to be fair, Easter Sunday followed with its startling clue to the riddle of the universe. Out of the darkness, a bright light shone. Even the greatest of miracles do not resolve the problems of this earth. All people who find physical healing eventually die. We need more than a miracle. We need a new heaven and a new earth. And until we have those, unfairness will not disappear. A friend of mine struggling to believe in a loving God amidst much pain and sorrow blurted out this statement, God's only excuse is Easter. The language is non-theological and harsh, but within that phrase lies a haunting truth. The cross of Christ may have overcome evil, but it did not overcome unfairness. For that, Easter is required. Someday, God will restore all physical reality to its proper place under his reign. God promises to balance the scales, to wipe away every tear. And the way to live out that hope is to now choose to live our life for the glory of God and to pursue his purpose and work. I want to show you a couple things about God's will that's going to kind of wrap us up before we go into the Lord's Supper. Because I think just as we sometimes confuse the unfairness of life with an unfairness of God, we have a tendency to confuse God's will. Oftentimes, we, we think of God painting a path for us. And there's a, there's a picture of a, I don't know how we'll be able to see it, but if you can see this picture, it's actually a road, and there's a paintbrush there, and there's a person on the road, and, and it's the idea that we often think of about God's will. That God has a direction for my life, he has um, a plan for me that will include the work that I'm to do, the person that I'm to marry, the places that I'm to live. And, and that's true. God does have those pieces in place that he will work in our life. But that is not seeking God's will. Those intersecting points are a very small beginning. That is not how we are to seek his will. God's will is not the road in front of us. It is, however, how we walk on the road. You see, every moment is a moment for us to display the goodness and greatness of God. It is not the circumstances that we encounter that are necessarily God's will. God's will for us is how we respond to those circumstances. How we live and reflect him in the midst of them. That is living by faith. And that ultimately is the answer that God gives to Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. We tend to focus on God's will as a destination. But God is interested in us living by faith with him and in him on the journey. 
And God in Habakkuk gives a comparison between the proud and those who live by faith in him and what he is doing. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up, speaking of the unrighteous. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This little verse in Habakkuk is quoted three times in the New Testament, and each time it's quoted, it emphasizes one aspect of its, of its parts. It emphasizes the just, it emphasizes shall live, and it emphasizes by faith. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it focuses in on the righteous. He says this in verses 16 through 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3 emphasizes faith itself. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. These statements are ultimately the statements that led to the Reformation that brought change in our understanding of how we are to relate to God. It flows out of that one statement. It's incredibly important. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38 emphasizes our faithfulness in our living and the way that we go about it. He says, yet a little while and the coming one will come. He's quoting back what God revealed to Habakkuk. He's saying, this vision is for the end time. And here in Hebrews, he's picking up on this same vision. Yet in a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by his faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Abraham is often called the father of faith. But do you realize God didn't tell him where he was going? He said, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of your fathers, the Ur of the Chaldees, and go to a land in which I will show you. The journey of faith was not the destination. It was trusting God one step at a time. And there are moments in Abraham's life when his trust is so exemplary, when his steps of faith, his courage in believing God show us what it's like. And there were other times when in his pride he decided to rely on himself and he got in trouble, just like us. When he chose pride, he ended up in trouble in Egypt. When he chose faith, God honored and blessed See, our lives are bigger than the pain, the disappointment. They're bigger than the path. God is designing us to bring him's glory. We are called to reflect who he is in his goodness and his grace. And I want to show you another picture that I think better illustrates the will of God for our lives. It's kind of hard to see because of the screen, but what you see on the top It's a time lapse, and you see the stars in the top making these patterns in the sky in this time lapse showing the greatness and glory of heaven. But then below, you see a path, and along that path has been an individual 
who walk the path carrying a light. In the time lapse, that light remains. That is what we are called to do, is that in this journey that we take, this life that we live, we are designed to bring light that shows the greatness of God in the same way that the heavens declare his glory. You and I can light up the lives of others around us because the path that we walk is the canvas upon which God paints his glory through our life, through our faith. God's will is not an event that happens to us. It is how we respond to what happens. When we choose to live by faith, to trust him in the midst of our circumstances, he will display his goodness and greatness. That is how we're called to live, to walk by faith. In a moment, we're gonna go to the Lord's Supper, communion time. And that display in the bread and in the cup shows God stepping into the brokenness of life. Jesus Christ gave his body. He willingly entered into the pain of this experience and he bore it on himself. He took the punishment, the suffering, the injustice in order to provide us a remedy. The cup represents his blood, which not only is shed for our forgiveness, but also clothes us with his righteousness. When we come to the table and partake of the bread and of the cup, we are seeing an answer to our questions because God showed himself. We are seeing how God answered the injustice of life by taking it on himself and bearing it for us. And we also see our hope, our hope that one day Jesus Christ will return because the scripture tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We partake of it in hope, in anticipation of his return when he will be established as king of kings and lord of lords and he will balance the scales and wipe away every tear. This is what we celebrate. This is why he chose this as a symbol of our faith. Just as baptism is a symbol of our individual transformation, this is a symbol of our hope and of our common unity as the body of Christ. So as we come today to take of the bread and of the cup, remember God provided the answer to our deepest questions in his son, Jesus Christ, in what he accomplished. And that we have great hope. 1 Corinthians 13 says, for now we see through a mirror dimly. We only have a small glimpse of what God is doing. But then we shall be fully known. We shall know, excuse me, we shall know fully even as we are fully known. And now these three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love.
That's what communion is. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, in a moment, we're gonna invite our servers to come and we're going to share the cup and the bread and we invite you to partake of it. But do so in a manner where you've searched your own heart. Look for sin in your own life. Look for things that are unconfessed because God is holy and this is a holy moment that we come into his presence in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you personally stepped into the unfairness and brokenness that we created as humanity. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you personally lived an answer to our questions. Would you open our eyes to see more clearly who and what you have done and would you strengthen our faith so that we will trust you and obey you and seek to display your glory to the lives around us. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your body. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. As we come to the table today, we ask your blessing upon the bread that represents your sacrifice, your giving of your all for us. As we taste it, let us remember your love. Let us remember your goodness. Lord, we thank you and ask you to bless the cup that represents your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and as the expression of a new covenant where you have made us your people, you have made us your body and your bride. Thank you for these elements these symbols that represent who you are. Enable each and every one of them, of, of us, to eat them and to drink it in remembrance of you. And we pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for we do desire for every knee to bow and tongue confess that you are Lord. We pray this in your mighty name.